This is the Breaking Down Incident Response Podcast. We are your hosts, Brian Betcher. And I am Michael Goff. Yes, and this is episode three of the BDIR podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, let me go over a few things in the show summary. Um, we have a guest, all right? We're going to introduce our guests. We are still lining up sponsors. We're going to go over some newsworthy items, the latest in Atlanta with some commentary and why you might want to think about a zero trust model. Then we're going to go into the malware of the month. Yes, um, the tactics continue to evolve. We're going to talk some about that. Then some site-worthy items. We've got a lot of good resources that have to do with the topic of the day. Tool-worthy. We're going to go over some tools we believe will be valuable to you as it relates to our topic. Okay. And first, let's talk about the topic of the day is uh, incident response process. You need one. Let's look at uh, our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by LogMD, the Login Malicious Discovery Tool. Discover it. It will help you with the topic we're talking about. In this case, Windows Incident Response is what it's focused at. But LogMD can be used for hashing and registry snapshots and log harvesting, as well as is auditing your system to see if you're compliant to various standards, but also uh, help you get your logs settings going so you can collect all the right things so us incident responders can actually help you. So LogMD, discover it. And we'll introduce our guest today is Leslie Carhart. Principal Threat Hunter at Dragos Incorporated. Hi, Leslie. Welcome to the show. Welcome aboard. Our first topic. News for you. All right. So we're gonna we're gonna do a little follow up on the Atlanta ransomware attack. Michael? Yeah, this obviously hit the news here a while back. We talked about it in a podcast like, you know, holy moly, what's going on with Atlanta and getting their systems ransomware. And then recently it's been discussed, there's a screenshot on the show notes that tell you the breakdown of how much the companies involved made or charged the city uh, in in regards to this this area. So it's it's, it's shocking. I mean, that's about the way to put it. So they're currently looking at $2.6 million is the amount of money that they currently spend to remediate a roughly $50,000 a ransomware attack. Now, they couldn't actually pay the ransom because the payment site was pulled off, probably because of all the press that happened, so they didn't want to get caught. Who knows what the reasons are? Can't ask the bad guys. Holy moly, $50,000 ends up costing the city $2.6 million. That, that to me, is, is mind-blowing, and it should be a great message, uh, A, being an instant response, right? This is uh, either pay me now or pay me later, a lot more later, and it's estimated this potentially will be 50 times the amount that the ransom would have would have cost them. So it's interesting, and it's a good lesson for how much will this really cost us. Um, it's also important to understand that these security firms that were brought in, uh, SecureWorks is one of them, um, Ernst & Young is another one, that these companies, uh, and I, I experienced this when I was at the state of Texas, and we had that large data leak with the comptroller, the amount of money that these entities pay their consultants to deal with the incident is incredibly expensive. Man, we were well over $20 million. I think it was $7 million alone just to notify all the Texas residents of the data leak. And you know what $7 million could have bought us in regards to security improvements? And so I look at this lesson as the same way. How much would $2.6 million buy me in security improvements? You know, $600,000 went to Ernst & Young. I mean, holy moly. They spent $50,000 on crisis communications. 
I mean, this is this is an interesting lesson for people. Um, and we don't get this published publicly on public companies. It's government when it occurs is where we get these stats from because government and open records. And so uh, I'm, I'm just kind of dumbfounded at the sheer cost. We made fun of a, of a school that caught a hacker after some 18,000 attempts uh, stealing people's uh, accounts and breaking in. And this is another example. Um, how, how long do you have to go? How much money do you have to spend to potentially get good security? And I really wonder, of all this money, what improvements did they really make? Well, I, I don't think you're comparing the the amount of money they spent to, well, they should have paid the ransom. Because I don't think they should have paid the ransom. I, I think they should have remediated like they did. Okay? But that just highlights the amount of money that you have to pay after the fact. Now, would they have saved money in the long run by spending um, all this money beforehand? Probably more. If you think about it, they may have spent even more than that on security to do it right, or at least half right, or whatever. That's some way to prevent this attack, let's say. Well, I don't you think know, but the reputation kind of attack, is, right? is, is a big thing as well. I think that's one thing we all need to agree on is you can't prevent these kinds of attacks. You can reduce them from happening for sure. I mean, if all the things and all the widgets we bought and all the money we spent actually did prevent everything, we would all be out of a job and the blinky boxes would have taken over for us, but they don't. Um, obviously, in City of Atlanta's case, they had publicly exposed things they shouldn't have exposed that contributed to getting compromised. You know, people click on emails. That's not going away, which is thus why this podcast exists and this topic being even better with our guests because we can talk about the process that every company should have. And I know in our case, Brian, we have events, no matter if they're small, whether it's consistent malware, Hansetter, Janitor, Emetet, Coveter, whatever, we look at the makeup and ransomware. I mean, we made significant changes due to ransomware, and now we don't get ransomware. That we, we look at how the makeup of these attacks are, and we say, you know, we need to make these tweaks. You know, prior to the show starting, we were talking about two-factor authentication. You know, we should probably have two-factor auth on everything because cred stealing if we lose a cred. Right, so you, you analyze what happens with these incidents and you feed it back into process improvement to say, hey, we're identified this big risk, you really should close this or something bad's going to happen. I doubt Atlanta was that far along in line where somebody identified this opening and said, hey, you might want to close this or something really bad's going to happen. And, and that's, that's what we do with all these uh, attacks that we get as we process improve our environment, which is kind of the topic of the of the day. Well, let's move on to our next article, which is... Let's ask our guest, introduce our guest and ask her, what, what, what does she think about the city of Atlanta thing? Well, um, a note of caution. Um, it's very tempting. We in security often live in a bubble of security, and we're very familiar with these types of incidents, and we think very much about the bottom line impact. And it's very tempting to look at the headlines on an incident or a breach like this and look at the final cost. Um, in an ideal environment, we have to remember that there are hypothetically risk managers who are making decisions about how much funding goes into security in a company versus the potential impact of a catastrophic system failure or a data breach. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that was the case here. Um, I mean, obviously, anybody can be victim to ransomware. Um, backups are a wonderful mitigation for some of the loss that that is uh, a byproduct of ransomware attacks. But still, it can happen to anybody. I caution against just looking at the bottom line and saying, oh, they did terrible incident response or they did terrible defense in depth. At some point, you look at some of these organizations like Equifax and say, somebody at the top there said, yeah, we could get breached, but 
our job is selling widgets and um, we're willing to um, accept $2 million worth of damage to not spend $2 million right now in taking our widget production down. So be cognizant of that and don't just jump right into saying $2 million is terrible and they did their security wrong. Um, it's a more complicated picture than that. I think just like in the, the Texas Comptroller case where, uh, unfortunately, I'm the poor sucker that found that damn thing, that they had amount of money that was spent afterwards on not very prescriptive solutions, more of advisory role scenarios, that uh, they didn't, the consultancy didn't tell our people anything different than we didn't already tell them and or already had had risk acceptance signed off by, you know, government individuals saying we accept this risk. So there is that, right, acceptance of risk. The perils of bureaucracy. Right. But in general, if you accept that risk, you accept the potential loss that goes along with it, reputation and everything else. This is 2.6 mil would have bought a lot of consultancies to do the work to shut down some of these internet-facing items and or some tweaks to email servers, right? I don't disagree. I, I think that... I definitely, looking at this case, I can see a lot of potential failure points and a lot of procedural failure points. But again, um, I, I caution against just looking at that bottom line figure and looking more at the facts of the case and what went wrong and seeing what we can learn from that. Yeah, yeah, that could have bought a lot of security improvements, but who knows where that decision came from? Did it come from state government? Did it come from a security administrator? Who made that decision ultimately? Probably not the boots on the ground security guys. Um, no, definitely not. Management accepted it and or was not informed of these weaknesses in a strong enough manner maybe? Who knows? As ultimately a failure of communication, either on the speaker or the listener, right? <laughs> you can probably always take it back to that. Uh, our or next story I, or comes I don't from know a... what I don't know. And if I don't know anything, I don't know that we're compromised. Unless something breaks, I don't have to really worry about it. Well, something yes, Everybody broke. who says I've never been hacked. Right. Yeah. Everybody's been hacked. You just don't know it. Well, it's, it's like the GDPR. I mean, you have what now they're saying 48 hours to report. But if I, you know, cover my ears and I don't hear about anything, then I don't have to report it. Right. So people are starting to have those conversations now. Interesting thought. <laughs> yeah. Client says I have to report. Maybe if I don't know, I don't have to report it. That's nothing new, though. Look at uh, firearm theft. That's supposed to be reported within X amount of time. And the, the people selectively being blind about their guns being stolen has been a topic of conversation for quite some time. Today, we have a guest. It's Leslie Carhart, a principal threat hunter at Dragos. Hello, everyone. And she's known as Hacks for Pancakes. I am. And her blog is tisiphone.net. Tisiphony.net, yes. <laughs> Tisiphone's easy. Sorry. <laughs> the problem with the play on words when we have those in our in our titles. All right, what's the second uh, subject you wanted to talk about there, Betcher? The, the other news story. Yeah. So our second news story is comes from the Global Threat report of 2017 from Darktrace. Um, it's a pretty much a PDF that has the summary of uh, some of their interesting case studies from the year. In one section, they talk about a particular hack. A North American casino recently installed a high-tech fish tank as a new attraction with advanced sensors that automatically regulate temperature, salinity, and feeding. What happened here is the attackers used that high-tech fish tank to 
transfer 10 gigabytes of data outside of the casino network. So they found out that no other device had communicated with this external location. It was just the one fish tank and uh, no other company or device was sending a comparable amount of outbound data. It was probably some... Maybe the data uh, was just blowing bubbles. Maybe it was just a bunch of bubbles in the data. They didn't know how to read it. (laughs) So is this an Internet of Things kind of hack? I mean, unfortunately, again, private company, we're not going to know the details other than it got disclosed as a compromised leak of information, you know, a breach. Uh, but is this an Internet of Things kind of breach, right? This is a, a thing that was put on the Internet to manage this stuff probably by a, a fish tank company, a fishing fishing support. I don't want to use the word fishing because of the fact we're in incident response. Since we are talking about fish, not the paper and email fish. This is the little, you know, they blow bubbles and they swim in the ocean, Dory and, and Nemo kind of fish. Uh, is this is this an Internet of Things compromise where this thing got published because the management of this device, like card key systems, uh, are published so outside people can manage them? I mean, is that is that ultimately I wonder what happened here? And and then again, or like, is this like a printer breach where somebody broke into something, maybe a, a fish, an actual email fish user clicked on it. They scanned something, found this thing like a printer that has all these capabilities, hacked it and said, wow, this thing's loaded with a, an Apache server and everything else. And I can I can own everything to Sunday. I mean, that, that's the part I think we're missing here. But but either way, I think there's a lesson to be learned that uh, you brought this story up. It doesn't say that the attackers did anything with the fish, like burn them up, freeze them, uh, increase their salt <laughs> count. So they say so they were human in that respect. <laughs> They just went after the company's data. So uh, basically by targeting an unconventional device that had recently been introduced into the network, the attack managed to evade the casino's traditional security tools. So I guess the lesson is make sure that you sort of think outside the box and don't just say, hey, I'm, I'm good enough. I've got these tools. Uh, start thinking about these other devices that are uh, connecting to your network and how those things can um, potentially do malicious things. Don't you mean think outside the tank? So were the fish fished? Is that how this whole thing started? <laughs> oh, wait, we have. I brought up the, the zero trust model, basically trust nothing, because we've had conversations, I, I think, privately, Michael, you and I, about, oh, it's a, you know it's an external system that's more high priority than an internal system. Let's fix our external facing things first, but the zero trust model uh, doesn't put that into play. It says, well, you should, you should not trust everything on your network, even the internal stuff, and treat them basically as the, as the same thing. Try to get all of these vulnerabilities remediated and, and look at them uh, in the same vein. I always try to remind people, and Leslie, you probably can chime in here being, being your background with the, the industry you're in. I always try to tell people they, you know, they make these problems very big. I go, all these systems that aren't patched, all these systems that have holes, yada, yada, yada. And I tell people, you got to focus on the internet facing ones first. Let's get those identified, split those up. I think in general, people see those as higher risk, even though I think our users are the highest risk because that's where most of our events that we have to act upon start. But the internet stuff is far more risky than an internal server. Like if that fish tank was only inside and didn't sit on the internet, it's probably a lot less risk. When we hear about our AV vendors console being able to be uh, compromised because it has some buffer overflow, you know, if they're already in, you got bigger problems than them breaking your your AV server. So I tend to tell people, you know, look, let's separate the internet stuff from the internal stuff. Let's let's get those two going. Focus at the stuff that's you know higher risk. Management will understand it's sitting on the internet, hopefully, so it's higher risk. 
that's where we need two-factor that's where we need to patch that's where we need to turn off ports you know that's where we need to put wafs in and firewalls and all the bells and widget and proxy servers and email phishing doodads and, and to get that conversation going of the highest risk stuff and then move inside because whatever you learn on the outside will theoretically <laughs> theoretically work inside there's an example that maybe initially this thing was inside and somehow somebody flipped a switch and put it outside and the little fishies got fished and used to to steal data and so maybe the concept of that is well i'm testing it internally and then someone approves putting it on the internet and and then the logic kind of goes goes out the window because how well are assets managed here right so the concept of your zero trust it's always very stunning to me and I don't get shocked by much anymore after 20 years in IT. I, when I see a casino get breached, that's one thing that still makes me pause because, you know, we think about like banks and stuff being the most secure institutions out there. And no, it's casinos. Uh, casinos are, are up there on the list for dogmatic security practices. And um, I think it's very symptomatic. I'm, I'm obviously coming from the industrial, industrial control system side of things. And uh, a problem that's been happening there and it's happening in IoT too is that things are getting that we're not connected to the internet for years and years are suddenly getting connected to the internet although these places relied on segmentation and segregation of devices for years all of a sudden times are changing we're in a brave new world where there's cloud service in, involved with internet of things and with ics and uh remote access is becoming more and more routine um yeah i i'm a little shocked to see this happen to a casino um and it's just very very symptomatic of things that are happening on a larger scale in iot and in acs yeah it was just a fish tank what's the big deal i mean i, I came across this with the card key system exploit i did uh, many years ago uh, this thing was not designed ever to sit on the internet. It actually had an RS-232 port, and lots of these are this way. And uh, the vendor had made had bought a, an adapter that literally converted RS-232 to Ethernet, and there are tens of thousands of these things on the internet now, and it allowed this serial-attached device to now suddenly be connected to a network, and these systems, in case of card key accesses for buildings and 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 hoas and and fancy home complexes that you know offer this on the internet so somebody externally can manage it uh, but originally they were designed to be inside the network and suddenly somehow it ended up on the outside of the network and either nobody noticed and or security was uh, a second thought and those card key systems were incredibly easy to compromise i could open every door not just a door so this fist tank thing may have been the same scenario well you know it's on the network i want to be able, oh but you're a customer you're a casino well i can't necessarily get back there without a bunch of security stuff so how about we just put it on the internet and manage the fish that way. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting. You know, uh, Betcher's always making fun about assets. Know your assets, know your assets. That's my, that's the thing I harp on more than anything else. Defense in depth and know your assets. And, uh, it, it also our ideas of what segmentation really means are changing. Um, we used to, you know, think of a segmented network and a lot of people in high level positions still think of a segmented network as this thing that's sitting in an isolated room over there. That's got cables only to itself. And now we're talking about, you know, VLANs on the same switch and segmented isn't really segmented necessarily from a security context anymore. Yeah, maybe it's just separated, but in reality, those can be hopped and or poisoned and or messed with, right? So yeah, it, fish tank, that's just, you know, I still, I still want to know if the fish got fished. Do they have an email address? Yeah, if you, they're on the internet, they got to have an email address. Nemo at casino.com? I mean, 
Come on now. <laughs> you you had a good point. I mean, things you think are on the inside ultimately for whatever reason could end up on the outside, right? Inadvertently or whatever. I've I've had a vendor put in an any any rule because they were troubleshooting and hey, it worked. And then they left. They did their job. Things were working again. Everyone was happy and everyone went about the way the call ended. And then a month later, you find that rule and, and all hell breaks loose, right? Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about malware of the month. Sigma ransomware. So the only real notable thing here, it's ransomware. It, it borked your box. If you can't find the artifacts, you're going to reimage anyway. There's really not much here to do. It wasn't it wasn't anything overly interesting. But the notable artifact was how this was received. And there, I've definitely seen this on the Slack channel where other people have mentioned this. And I have conversations with uh, my buddy Dan all the time about this subject and sent him a sample of the screenshot we got. The cool thing about this particular email fish campaign was, not that it was ransomware, who cares it's ransomware, the message came in with a Word doc that was encrypted. Now, the reason they do that, obviously, is they get by the AV scanners, they get by the spam checkers, they get because they're looking at words within the email addresses, and if it's encrypted, they can't read the Word doc and what's in it. They get by, you know, uh, any kind of uh, sandboxing, it's got a password, I can't, I can't open it, but there's been some effort on a lot of the providers, sandbox people and, and you know, the, the email attachment, web proxy attachment people that scan these things to start pumping the words in, from the subject and the body of the message into the field when it pops up and says password needed and it starts trying all the words that are in the, in the email. Well, in this case, it was brilliant because the password was actually the comment that the email to the user was inside of an image. So the text was in an image embedded in the email so that there were actually no text, there was no text in the body of the message, which means I can't scan for it. But yet the, the person who received the email, being that, you know, really can't tell that there is an image in the thing, sees the password, enters it in the Word doc, opens it, and boom, gets ransomware. Um, I thought that was brilliant because it breaks the ability to scan for text and passwords and pump them into these sandbox evaluation solutions. And I just thought, man, they're starting to figure out the fact that the sandbox people and the security solution people are starting to read the messages and use that to try to open these encrypted documents. So that's the the big takeaway here. It's ransomware. Your box is borked. <laughs> you're, you're not going to go hunting for it because the box doesn't work anymore. You're just going to take it offline and reimage it. So there's the artifacts are kind of irrelevant. But that was Sigma ransomware. We did get notification that other people got it. And I think it's just brilliant that they did that. And, and it's just worth noting as, as folks, you might want to uh, see if your email scanning solutions of the world can maybe notify you when there's an embedded image <laughs> in your or there's no text. Maybe it's no text is more important to scan for. Is there any text in the body of the message? And I, I have seen messages that literally people just put pictures in, but I don't know. This is a this is a tough one. I can see this is a, is a good immunity. avenue. You have to rely on herd immunity more and more against these campaigns. It yeah. doesn't really help much with targeted attacks. Yeah. And uh, with the loss of who is, it's becoming more and more difficult to start looking at the registrars or the sending mail servers. So. Well, we haven't lost them yet. That's not until May, right? Until they a couple more days, yeah. a few more days, and then no more. Who is? Um, but yeah, uh, in theory, we oh. rely so much on those herd immunity services, those cloud email services. Now it's going to be interesting. So, uh, yeah, it, it's a tough one. I think this is kind of brilliant. So it's worth mentioning. That's our hour of the month. Sigma ransomware doing embedded images with text, no text in the body, hard to scan for. Kind of brilliant. Right. So it's a um, tit for tat. Right. We evolve. They evolve. Yep. Um, and this is the latest evolution in the uh, phishing emails that we've seen. So on to our next topic. Sorry. All right. We got a few sites to talk about. The first is BDIR, ISO 27035. 
Yeah, so the Information Security Incident Management Standard from the 27,000 series ISO stuff, uh, you know, I did a lot of work with this when I was at HP. That was our adopted standard for our clients to, to we mapped everything to the ISO 27001 and 2 stuff, and they have their own standard. We're talking about incident response. You know, this is, uh, you're going to start a program, you have to base it on something, and so ISO 2735 is a good start. I'm curious what Leslie thinks on both of these. And of course, the government one is number two would be NIST 861. I'm not, I've been in government, not a fan of government documentation. I find them too thick, too broad. They're written to be interpreted. If you take five people and read a NIST document, five people will come up with five different ways of interpreting it. I don't find their, their wording to be overly specific enough. And so anybody can interpret it any way you want. I tend to like the ISO standards personally myself. But you do have to pick something to build your program off of. And so we list these as our sites for you to go get information on. Links are in the show notes. They are. At bdirpodcast.com. We should probably mention that too. <laughs> Leslie's got a couple links. Why don't you uh, talk about your uh, your websites that you've recommended here that we've listed on the show notes? So I, uh, I listed more sites than I want to talk about right now because I wanted to give people a lot of resources to learn about a tricky topic that has a lot of facets in IR. But my top two picks are uh, windowsir.blogspot.com, which is Harlan Carvey's uh, blog, and I think it's vastly underappreciated. He talks about a lot of really crucial topics, especially in Windows forensics and incident response. And my second pick is learndiffer.com, um, Phil Hagen, um, who also does wonderful blogging and educational resources on incident response. Good deal. All right, on to the next thing. Let's talk about some tools. Now, this tool is a little different. Leslie has a long list to share with you as well. Again, we're not going to, not a tool tool. We're talking about a process and the procedure and the program of incident response. Uh, our picks were books this month, uh, just a couple books that we point people to, uh, which actually one of them overlaps with Leslie's choice here is Blue Team Handbook Incident Response Edition by Don Murdoch. Uh, it's got all the command line stuff. Literally, think of it as a flight man. You open it up and you're going to type these commands. Uh, one of the classes I taught up in Oklahoma, someone pointed out there was actually an error in the book. <laughs> I told him to send it to me so I can give it to Don. Uh, but it varies prescriptive. It has, has Nix and, and Mac and Windows stuff in it. And you want to know what commands to type and some background. It doesn't talk about the incident response as a program. It's the doer. It's the, it's the actual analyst doing the work. That's what that book's for. And the other one's the Blue Team Field Manual by Alan White and Ben Clark. And that's more of a program book for, for those. Let's see what you what you got there. You've got a few as well listed. Okay, so again, I made a, a very long list of uh, books and tools to learn from. Um, Tool-wise, um, I think that the one that's most neglected still in incident response is volatility. Um, there's no excuse. It's been over a decade. Everybody should be learning memory forensics. It's so, so cru crucial to doing window system analysis and indeed any operating system analysis at this point where, well, where malware is becoming more uh, memory resident and we're seeing less artifacts on disk. And it's just such a simple way to gather a flat file of evidence and then you know a, a reasonable processing time to get immense amounts of data about what's happened on a system uh, in terms of user operations and potentially malicious processes. Um, so if you haven't spent time learning volatility yet, you should be out there learning it now. And uh, of course, I have to give a nod to SIFKit. Um, if you're trying to learn Differ and you're trying to learn Instant Response, um, you should definitely have downloaded SANS SIFKit by now. Um, it's free. You can just create a SANS or a GEC account and go download it. And it's got a bunch of Linux forensics tools pre-configured. 
There's uh, PDFs with guides for each of the tools on the desktop on it. So it, it's really a fantastic free educational tool for learning about forensics and incident response. Excellent. And those links to those tools are in the show notes. I know uh, I've used SIF before, Volatility. Yeah, quite a few of these uh, really good tools. Redline, also good. And she, do, and she does have an extensive list of books, too. You got a couple that are favorites. I know I own three of those, so <laughs> I definitely agree with you on, on a lot of those books there. Uh, but you got a couple of ones that people must read. The response is that it's really kind of a tier two, tier three job that you do after you've done other things for a while. Um, it's really, it's not an entry-level job, in my opinion. You've already had systems administration and network engineering experience. You've done security anal analysis or SOC work, and you, you're taking all those experiences and you're plugging them into responding to a high-pressure, high-fast-paced incident. So I tried to give you enough broad resources in various niches that go into incident response to give you a good head start if you're coming from zero to having to do incident response. And those will yes, be the they already are. And uh, yes, I have. I've probably read about half of these books, Leslie. So... I'm on my way to becoming a good IR. Again, that's for, it's maybe not the best choice for somebody who's already experienced with IR like you guys, but uh, I wanted to provide resources for somebody who's not coming from a long-term security background. I mean, it's great for those of us who have been doing security for a while to keep studying and learn new stuff, but we've probably learned a lot of those skills through other methods, just through work. Yeah, the, mm -hmm. the one thing books definitely are hard. Um, I, I've worked some incredibly hard attacks. The pressure, like you pointed out, and the amount that you have to do and how late you have to stay up and how much you have to get organized, keep straight, taking notes, uh, that's a hard thing to teach or make people understand. And we tell people that, look, if you want to do IR, it's not an 8 to 5 job. You're going to get woken up at 10, 11 o'clock by some SOC analyst or somebody saying, I'm seeing this really weird thing, especially if you're in a in a scenario, I mean, like that fish tank, I guess they're not catching that during the day. <laughs> in the middle of the night, someone Attackers know when we work. I've, I've had That's like right. two Thanksgivings in the last 10 years with my family. Yeah. Um, they know when we're on vacation. They know when to attack, especially more advanced attackers and even commodity malware. Uh, campaigns too. They get sent out when they know people aren't going to be working or they're going to be with their families during the holidays. Yeah, just expect to be working at odd hours and uh, responding to adversaries in other countries who are working their time zones. Um, yep. It's an adventure. And we're, we're isolated here in the United States, right? We have an Atlantic Ocean and we have a Pacific Ocean, which makes it an entire day difference, no matter who your attacker is. Uh, short of them coming from the south. So, yeah, it, it's tough. That's a part in the book I don't think you can read about that I think really needs to be, you know, people need to understand. If you want to come in an incident response, it is very demanding when something goes south. Right. And and you get those emails at 5.30 on a Friday right before a long weekend, right? I love those. It's yeah. always 5, 5 p.m. on Friday. Never, yeah. ever. Or uh, 2 a.m. on Christmas, yeah. yeah. Never, ever um, ignore those and say, I'll deal with them Monday, or you're going to be dealing with it Monday night, Tuesday night, yeah. Wednesday night. There's, yeah. You mentioned Thanksgiving. I still remember that Thanksgiving Day outage that we had. That There went my 9 o'clock in the morning and all day long. So, yeah. Definitely, um, definitely can relate. You have to have a certain mentality to get an incident response. It's not, it, like you said, it's not an eight to five job. And you have to be able to just deal with constant pressure and, you know, pressure at weird times when you're tired and 
you know, you've been working for 40 hours or it's two in the morning. You'd have to love things being on fire. And you'll probably not like some of your coworkers when it's said and done if they don't help you do the work that needs to be done in the middle of the night. <laughs> I found I found that out to be a bit true. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be ready to also be the person who gets things done at two in the morning while everybody else is asleep. Yep. I agree there. <laughs> we digress a little bit, but it is an important point. If you are interested in this area, it is definitely not an eight to five job. It will have you up late at night and weekends. And, and you're going to have slow times too. So that's Correct. important to note too. You also have to be okay with sometimes you're not going to have anything to do and you have to go out and find other projects, um, whether that's documentation or, you know, doing tabletop exercises or, you know, uh, drilling procedures. You have to be prepared to fill your time when nobody's attacking. The P in the pick roll model, right? Preparation, you're constantly doing that to make it easier and, and more repeatable, for sure. Having to do with the pick roll model, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get on to our topic of the day, which is uh, the incident response process. Program plan, policy process, playbooks, and roles. So the program is pretty straightforward. You have to pick something you're going to base your program on. Less I'm curious with your feedback is here. You know, people ask, you know, where do you start? Well, you know, go read one of these frameworks, ISO 2735, NIST 861, uh, whichever, if you're in government or, or heavy government uh, contract type work, you, you might have to go down the 861 path. If you're everybody else, uh, ISO 2735 is probably a good place to start. It'll help you build your plan, understand what your requirements are. And this is, you know, U.S. based, obviously, ISO's international, but uh, there's a lot of regula regulatory requirements overseas that we don't necessarily have here uh, like they do in other countries. So the program is what you're going to do in general that you, you should have one. And I guess keeping in mind, Leslie, and I know I've worked for small companies, HP. I worked in a gaming company, fought the Chinese a lot. Things are somewhat different between small companies and enterprises because roles overlap a lot. But small companies may not necessarily look at this and go, I, I'm, I'm going to base my, you know, 1,000-node 10 people IT security, you know, resource based on ISO 2735. The program may be more of, well, this is this is something you can reference in a policy. It's something you can reference in a, in a basic plan that, uh, you know, we follow these frameworks and that we will make adjustments based on whatever these, these revisions are to these frameworks. But it's a place to start and a place to read, I think, is really more of what these frameworks are for. I'm a fan of the NIST framework. I like it. Um, but it's very high level. So what I recommend to people normally, if they do or do not want to use those frameworks, is uh, start at the top of your company and start understanding how things work. Um, understand who's out there, who's already doing security and policy, and work your way down. Find out what things are your crown jewels, what systems will have a major business impact if they go down or they're breached, and uh, then dig into those teams a little bit more and find out what things could cause those breaches. Uh, a lot of incident response is just knowing your environment and knowing what your business model is, how your company makes money, and what will cause it to stop being a, a effective business. You can use those frameworks and I like them a lot and they'll give you a lot of ideas from a, a high level and a policy level. But when you start talking about how you're going to respond to specific incidents, you need to have lots of conversations with lots of people in different departments from the top down in your company. And you'll need a lot of help. Sometimes us analysts aren't the best people to do some of that work. You need people that are a little more project oriented, a little more management, communication, you know, inquisitive, try to talk to the level of business, not to the weeds of, well, how does that web app talk to this thing in this database, right? It's, it's understanding and eventually the business you need to do that, But that's why you start yeah. at the top. You figure out, well, I've got a finance system somewhere and it'd be bad if the credit cards got stolen. And then you start talking to the finance team and they're like, oh, well, that's contracted out to this company. And 
we send them some data and then you go down to their IT team and the contracted IT team and you say, how is that data sent? Yeah. So plans were interesting, incident response plans. Um, I, I'm, I struggle with these a lot. One, resources are few and far between. The only one I listed in the show notes is the Carnegie Mellon. I happen to be a, a certified incident handler from Carnegie Mellon. Um, wouldn't recommend it as a, you know, like, oh, this is the greatest training ever. It was just training to me. It was just a certification. I didn't find it, like, really good, really bad. It's a pretty easy test. But having sample plans, I, I'm surprised, surprisingly hard. And I also am not a fan of these plans that are 175 pages long. People aren't going to necessarily pick this thing up and start reading through it like a flight manual. It's not very prescriptive. It's It's also not for somebody like us that are analysts. It's more of for my manager and the people that they want to know that we follow a framework, that we have a plan, that their communication has been taken into, into account and all those sort of things. But this is an area I have definitely struggled with and, and people have asked me, where can I get a good incident response plan from? I'm, uh, good question. I don't know. I've never really seen one I really like. And so what, do you, what, what advice do you have for people in building a incident response plan? How thick should it be? It may be a, it depends question. Is it the same for SMBs as it is for enterprise? I don't think so. So what guidance can you give to companies there on what to do? The, about? the reason that most companies, I, I have a lot of people come up to me and say, can you send me a, a company's IR plan that I can base mine off of? And you're, you're pretty much never going to get that. Uh, they're so specific to, you know, systems and processes and business needs inside an organization that Except for that high-level thing you see in ISO and NIST, uh, it's it's not a really translatable thing from organization to organization. SANS has some good guidance on building one, but again, it's pretty high-level. The advice that I just gave is is really, I mean, you have that framework from like NIST about the various things, broad areas you need to cover, but then you need to start looking at how your environment works, what's out there, and what could go wrong. You really need to have an idea of what are the things that could possibly go wrong and what could cause them? And um, not necessarily explicit causes either, because those things can always change. But what could break? And what would the impact of that thing breaking be? Would it cripple your business? What would the risk impact be? So make friends with a risk manager. And then, again, start having those conversations. It's all about understanding your environment. And uh, once you break things down into more manageable chunks about the things that could possibly go wrong that would impact your business in negative ways, uh, then you can start writing procedures based on those frameworks for those specific types of events. Tend to agree. It does always that, yeah. come back to understanding your environment. I like what you said about asset management. I mean, I harp on that all the time. And whenever I give a talk, I have I have a slide in there somewhere that says asset management and the slide is blank. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> right, because it's a reflection of how most companies um, treat asset management. It's 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 basically non-existent, right? And I don't I don't know what to do. Uh, it's it's really hard to keep track of your assets. And and why is it on the CIS uh, top 20, right? It's number 1 and number 2. Well, mm -hmm. fish tank. It's very important. <laughs> I mean, right? Did anybody know that thing had some sort of server on there that got right? So that's it's the all, problem. It's, it's universal. So if you're out there right now and you're listening to this and you're like nobody knows that I I don't know what's out there on my network, you know, you're not alone. There's no, organizations alone. of all sizes out there who have like 2000 three servers and they don't know who put them there and they don't know what they are or if they can bring them down. That's like a universal problem. Um, unfortunately, it's really bad, but it, the, the first step is acknowledging that you have a problem. And, you know, sometimes that involves 
we, we love doing sexy forensics work and malware analysis and security. And sometimes you really have to commit a month and like the work hours to rebuild your asset database. I mean, even if that's going out there and comparing your scans with your, you know, your patch management server and your antivirus server, building that asset list, I know it's not your responsibility necessarily as a security person, but you have no idea the value that will provide to you if you're able to get your boss to approve you spending a couple of weeks or a month just doing their job for them and rebuilding your asset list. Or, you know, if you can go up to the executive level and have it forcibly directed on those teams that they need to rebuild their asset list and you can verify their work. Either way, you're not alone and you need to get it done. That's utterly crucial for incident response. Yeah, I, I've often told people, even we're an organization now, but in the past I was at a bank and it was often the security people in my case with the fact that I can scan everything, map everything in a database, you know, there are security tools tend to be discovery based, you know, scanners, Nessus, NMAP, all these things discover all this information and it's often security people will know more about what's in the environment. There's these things, we don't know necessarily who owns them, like you said. Uh, but we've identified them, we've seen them in a scan, they're in something somewhere. And, and generally, I find the security people probably have, if they have this set of tool suites and do this kind of work, the best high-level map of what's in the environment. But they definitely don't know who owns all of it. And then it's maintaining that, putting those links together, uh, and, and making it interesting, right? So I've always said, uh, in, when people lack these resources of tools and whatnot, Use the box itself. Go find it. Get an account so you can get on it as a security individual. Create a registry key if it's Windows, a, a text file, uh, something somewhere that's that's documented that says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna ask five questions. Where is this damn resource? Who's the main contact? What does it do? And you know what's a unique thing about it? Where, where it is within the network? Meaning, is it internet facing? Is it internal? Is it you know whatnot? And store that within the box because as security people. We script things. We use tools that can read files. I know where this file or this key is or this, uh, you know, again, just a, a file that can be looked at in, in a Linux box. And so I can query it anytime something I investigate. Well, let's look at this file and text and see what's out there. I don't need a fancy system. There are ways to cheat and kind of do things in a in a simplistic way. And even if you have a fancy um, asset management system, um, there are little tricks you can do to try to identify this stuff. And and try you know try to think outside the fish tank, and and come up with ways to help identify these things because when it comes to building the plan, you might have collected enough of these tidbits from all these bits and parts that you might actually be able to to separate your environment and put this in your plan. We got these these things over here. We're gonna put that in the plan and figure out what we're gonna do about those, right? Um, and sometimes security is is the people that might have tools that can help you here. Um, not that it's really our job. It should probably shouldn't be our job, but. I found that the places that are really good at it, generally security had something to do with it. We're, we're InfoSec janitors, so um, tough luck on us. You know, sometimes we have to do those dirty jobs that aren't supposed to be our jobs just to just to get things secured. Yeah, more identified so we can deal with it when the time comes. So models, um, I threw this on here because Brian and I both recently attended uh, Vern's talk here, uh, local ISSA chapter talk on a little two-hour workshop thing. I always like to see what our counterparts are doing. And, and Vern and I, uh, I brought Vern in at the comptroller when I left to replace me. And he based his on the NIST framework where I generally will probably point people down the, the SANS pick-a-roll model. Um, but I generally tell people, you know, hey, what, what are the steps? I teach it in my training 
I show the pickerel model though. There's an iterative process in, in doing the identification and containment and, and looping there until you can go and eradicate and, and remediate the whole mess because sometimes you're black holing, you're not really getting rid of it. As opposed to the non-pronounceable, um, you know, ISC squared thing where they prep, detect, analysis, contain, eradicate, recovery, it's not as easy as pickerel. Um, maybe the marketing is probably a good thing here. I don't know. Uh, but these models are handy because they're simplistic, right? Prepare the pickerel model, and that's a big thing in incident response. So what, what do you recommend people do to simplify all this into something that's easy for them to remember and the, and the steps maybe they can address, right? I generally use the SANS model, too, when I'm teaching people. It really is well documented, and there's a lot of great SANS white papers about its use. So... I mean, it's a great model. I, I, I'm pretty agnostic about models. Like NIST has a great model too. Um, they kind of say pretty much the same thing. They break the steps down a little bit differently, but you know, you start with preparedness and you end with, you know, lessons learned after an incident. So yeah, I, I don't really have a strong preference either way. Pick what works for you. But usually when I'm teaching people, I, by default, without thinking, uh, tend towards the SANS model. If you can make an acronym that's a little easier to remember, you, you know, try to try to get people to to learn that because it's these steps will help you build a plan. It'll help you build your response to things that occurred, and remind you that you must prepare and you have to learn something when it's all over. If you're not doing those two things, the next time this thing happens to you would be painful, which leads us into the next item. Um, but you had a comment on our show notes about this, and I, I think it's real important because I've struggled with this as well. I generally look at playbooks as, well, what am I dealing with right now? I want to get that documented so I potentially can hand it off to somebody else or some steps of it to somebody else. But you had an interesting uh, perspective on where do you start in building playbooks? What are they? Why do we need them? Why are they important in the whole process of incident response? Uh, knowledge transfer should be our number one priority in security. Uh, we should never do anything whether it's security operations or incident response and security without writing down exactly what we did, documenting it for the future. It's just an incredible waste of time to redo the same thing and think through it and rebuild tools for, for the same thing a year later or a week later. Um, so that should be, in my opinion, probably our number one priority in, in as security operations and incident response people is documenting everything that we do. Um, and playbooks are, of course, just a byproduct of that. Um, we should be building readable, coherent, playbooks for every task that we do and documenting as much as we can because we're not machines uh, as security people we all have different strengths and weaknesses there's a lot of different niches of security and nobody will ever be good at really good at all of them simultaneously um, so we've got to try to do that knowledge transfer as best as we can if i'm stronger on forensics um, i want to write playbooks for my colleague who's stronger on malware reversing and vice versa um, so it's, it's utterly crucial that we build those playbooks out. Otherwise, it's going to be two in the morning on Christmas. We're going to be exhausted, and we're not going to remember what we did a year ago. Um, the playbooks are as much for us who are writing them as it is for our young analysts who are coming in who don't have the experience. Yeah, a great example of that is uh, we recently built a cred-stealing response um, scenario, right? There's obviously a phishing response, which then says, is this a credential stealer? Oh, crap, we have our own playbook for that because there are websites, uh, because some of our analysts don't have a lab, so we're like, okay, but you can actually, if you need to, look on this, look at this on your phone. So we came up with websites that allow you to see an image of the URL, so you could potentially look at it and say, oh yeah, that's that's a login page. That's not good. And and I have to sometimes remember what the URLs and links of odd sites I've put in there. 
And even for me, I use it, copy, paste, bam, into the browser. And so, yes, they're even useful to us. Now, another th- Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think another thing I know people struggle with, I know Brian's mentioned this to me. I, I, you know, I look at a blank piece of paper, where do I start? And I, I learned this from my consulting days uh, in working with my clients at HP, is that when I when I see, and this comes from, I used to be in aerospace long before that, and, and we're very process-oriented. So lots of lots of diagrams, right? And lots of flow charts in I was also. I think it's a. So I think I think it's a thing. I keep seeing incident responders who have a background in aviation. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. I left. Well, long story about that one. We'll have to cover that in another podcast about our backgrounds. The the process flows is something I look at and say, look, people have art. Engineers uh, does not rhyme with writing. It rhymes with beer. So we're really good at drinking beer, uh, as DerbyCon and, and other cons prove. But we're not very good necessarily at writing. You look at a blank piece of paper. How do I start a playbook? I always tell people when I consult that you got to start, do a flow chart, you know, if then that, if then that, and try to get a simple box down with a statement that says, okay, now what do you do when that fish comes in? Well, it, it gets assigned a ticket. Ah, okay, put that down there. This thing comes in, immediately open a ticket. Okay, let's put a box in there, open ticket. Then what do you do? And so as a consultant trying to get a person to get their process down, I would always start with flowcharts and just getting the steps that they take down and say, okay, now let's write a paragraph about that box that we just talked about when it's all done and everybody and the team agrees, this is the process we follow. Now let's write a paragraph about that box, about what specifically we do and we expand it from there. And I see this very useful for playbooks because, you know, it is a step one, step two, step three, step four, much like an engine failure in a, in a, in a plane, you're going to take certain immediate steps. And it can't be complicated. It's got to be pretty quick on the eyes. It's got to be pretty easy to read at two in the morning when you're tired. Um, and it shouldn't be 175 pages of, of page. What page was that on? That we're talking about ransomware, what to do. Um, and, you know, really simple, straightforward, a page or two playbook is, to me, highly valuable. Start there because you can always refine it. So um, I, I two things. I agree with you completely. Something that I tell everybody who's writing playbooks is invest in a good flow charting software. Just go pay for it right now. Um, Visio? You're going to try to build checklists in Excel, and it's just not going to work. You're going to be writing the same task like seven <laughs> times in a row in a checklist. It's a flowchart. You, sometimes you reach the end earlier when you're doing investigation. Sometimes you get all the way through the list, and you finally reach the end. It depends on what happens. Uh, yeah, absolutely invest in a good piece of flowcharting software. And also, I recommend write one directive statement as what each step each box in the flowchart or each step of the of the list of tasks. Simple directive, easy to read when you're tired at two in the morning on Christmas. And then also have expandable details that will help you out if you're really, really hungover. Give me an example of one. Let's give the listeners oh, an example of the um, statement. Ransomware, malware, web defacement, whatever. Um, let's say something really, really simple like brute force attempts. You might say, say there's a, a brute force login attempts against your external router or something simple like that. Um, you're going to have a step that says investigate uh, the the source IP address. And it's just going to say investigate the source IP address. But if you expand that, it's going to say, okay, now, you know, do your who is for the next two weeks. Well, you can still do a who is. Go do a who, who is and find out who it belongs to. Um, you know, see if it's blacklisted, et cetera, et cetera. And you're going to break out each of those specific steps even farther to help you out if it's a newer analyst or if I like, like said, it's 2 a.m. on Christmas and you're really hungover and you can't think through all the steps clearly. So you've got a simple directive at a high level and then 
you give further details for somebody who's struggling with that simple directive, but you don't want to have three paragraphs on how to do who is oh, no, no, no. Yeah. in your, in your playbook at a high level. You want to have a simple directive that says, get the ownership information on the IP address or the domain. Right. Um, but you want to also somewhere linkable or expandable on that have further instructions available. Uh, appendixes are great. I know Brian's experiences for me. If it's something that I, you know, as I'm scanning through a page of text, the bullets are things I actually do. The text explains more about that bullet. So if I can look at the bullet and say, oh, I know what to do there. Look, do who's look up. Okay, got Precisely. that. Precisely. Uh, right. So I, I look at that and then that's and that's how I go about them. But you made an interesting uh, comment about where do you start building playbooks? What's your catalyst or trigger for people to start doing playbooks? Depends on, I mean, as I said earlier, it depends on your environment, depends on whether you're um, being very proactive or whether you're in a very operational environment. But like I said earlier, you should never be doing a task. You should never be responding to a thing without documenting every step and, you know, verifying it and making sure it makes sense afterwards. That's your lessons learned stage of, responding to an incident but you should also be doing pro proactive playbooks as well especially if you know you have a skills imbalance on your team you have people who are stronger in say uh network forensics and people who are stronger in malware analysis uh you need to recognize that early on and have the people who are stronger in specific areas write basic essential playbooks on those tasks they're experts at for the people who are less experts in those specific things. Yeah, I know after I write them, I kind of tell people, I need you to walk through that and actually go do it and tell me what's wrong with it. Brian, Brian does a lot of that for me. <laughs> I do. <laughs> All right, go go break this. So Yeah, and I, and I have a lot of corrections too, so that's that's one thing. So we have a list in the show notes of, of some example playbooks and and Leslie, you, you said the difference is uh, some of these are causes, some of these are facts. Can you talk about that? Um, what what should you should you write a playbook playbook titled ransomware or denial of service? So um, I don't like lists. I don't like making lists of playbooks really, like because they vary so much by verticals and organization size. Um, so you you did your best to pull together a list of playbooks for people who are starting to get through this process of building playbooks in their environment. It's very easy when you're generating playbooks to think, to put things like denial of service and also unexpected login and also um, phishing. So you could have phishing that results in denial of service or a worm which impacts your network. You don't know what the impact of phishing is. It's a thing. It's happened. It could be credential theft. It could be financial phishing. It could be any type of manipulation of your employees. So phishing can be a lot of different things. It can have a lot of different impacts. It is a cause of those things. Um, you're interested more in like the, the ex specific external stimuli, the, the cause, um, than necessarily the effect in those cases. So you, you have to think about your playbooks as either a cause or an effect, essentially. And when I see people list out their playbooks, it's usually a mix of both of those things. It's some things that are causes and it could have multiple effects. And some things that are effects, they could have multiple causes. Does that make sense? It does. Yes. But what do you recommend? It's, it, <laughs> it really depends on the environment. Um, I, I'm sorry, that's a, a, a terrible cop-out. But once again, we go back to knowing your environment and having those conversations within your team about the sorts of threats that you face and 
the sorts of impacts that would impact your business from a security perspective. Your playbooks are look, going to look very, very different in an IoT or industrial control scenario than they are in a financial environment. The threats that you face are going to be different on a regular basis from mundane to targeted and the potential impacts that you're going to care about are going to be very, very different. And it's okay to both have cause and effect playbooks, but recognize that you have both and identify which one is which, because you could end up being in a situation where you pull a playbook down for the cause, and then you realize that you have an effect and you've got a playbook for that too. And you'll end up with a conflict and a lot of confusion about which playbook you're going to follow. So that's a decision you have to make, thinking about the things that will impact you and the types of alerting you get into your environment. Yeah, part of the, uh, when we posted in show notes, I went out and said, all right, let's see what people say about playbooks. And this particular vendor had posted the, the top five cybersecurity incident response playbooks that their people automate. And they had listed five, and I, I put them in the show notes as just a, a reference, right? Handling ransomware, crypto locker infection, unauthorized domain admin access, handling malware infection, remediate website debasement, and multiple simultaneous logins, whatever you know that might cover. And I, I found that interesting because then I found a list that someone had mentioned on PeerList where they had ripped through a whole bunch of them. I think there's you know, 20 or whatever, but uh, yeah, phishing, virus worm, uh, ensure that the host has updated virus definition file. Like, what, playbook for that? What, what traffic Sure, flows? I can see that. I've, I've definitely seen that environments. Again, it's yeah, been it very vastly from environment to environment. Yeah, and, and so there was this big list, and I'm, I kind of looked at it going, this isn't really prescriptive of either where to start. It's just a, it's just a list, right? It didn't. They dumped out every ticket playbook that they have at their, in their system, and they uh, removed the details and put it on PeerList. And yeah, that's great. I possibly. mean, it gives people an idea of where to start. Yeah. You've re- there has to be critical thinking involved. I, I would recommend people, what are you seeing most? I mean, because you, A, you have to create a template for your playbook, so you have to start doing them. And I just tell people, whatever you're dealing with first and foremost, start there everybody's going to have a comment. Your manager will have a different look at it because he's going to use it when he has to go talk to somebody else about it than I will as the person actually doing the analyst work. Um, and so these things will develop over time and you'll finally start figuring out how they're crafted for your your organization. Hard to choose which ones to start with. It is, um, you really just have to jump in to the, to the deep end of the pool. Do keep writing those playbooks as you do things. Yep. I would agree with that. And there's a whole list in the show notes. We won't we won't uh, go through them. Even Internet hoaxes made it in here for some reason. But yeah, there's there's a whole list of them. It, it, it is a, a touchy subject, but you do have to build them. They are, again, as Leslie points out, and I will reiterate, they are for training, replacement, other people doing your role so you can take a vacation, preferably not on Thanksgiving, Christmas. Though January is usually pretty slow because the Chinese New Year. Don't say it. Don't, don't tell them. Don't tell them they know. Don't tell them we know. And so the next thing is, you know, uh, roles is something that, that's brought up in, in the IRR process is, you know, what roles do people play? Uh, Brian and I were talking about that today a little bit uh, in regards to asset management um, and, and trying to you know, realize that, that certain thing wasn't covered like we thought. So, all right, who's going to figure this out? Um, and asset management wasn't overly accurate, so we're like, uh, okay, we've got a problem. So roles is important. What, what do people do? Um, you thought a bunch were missing from the list that I dumped from, uh, I think a lot of these came from the uh, Carnegie list is where I got some of these. I think I got some from an article Sorry, too. Sorry, Carnegie. It was a good list. I just uh, did see some things that 
I thought for very important operational reasons should be included. Let's talk about roles, what each person do. I have a pet peeve, right? One of the things I've seen personally and being somebody who has to uh, do the actual analyst work and what I'm trying to do, getting the, the, the bad guys um, contained and whatnot, is communication needs to not be part of my job because I need to tell somebody what I know and quit being bugged, literally lock the door, block out the window so they can't see what we're doing uh, so we can concentrate on the event, right? So there is a need to go between the person doing the work and the, you know, uh, executives that want to know what the hell's going on and, and what's happening. And there's a whole lot of roles in the middle of that, that I think uh, smaller organizations obviously won't have a bunch of dedicated people. There are definitely some roles that should be specifically not done by the the analyst uh, anyway for a manner because they really do need to do what they're good at, right? The fighter pilot shouldn't be writing reports until it's all said and done and over and they've landed and, and there's no crisis to, to deal with. Talk about roles a little bit. What do you... Uh... So the the first thing that I got really mad about at this list, no, I didn't get mad. I just uh, thought that was a glaring omission for that specific reason is we definitely do not, as incident responders who are leading an incident response process, want to be bothered by sending out emails or going up to the CEO's office and telling them what's going on. So I highly recommend that you break out incident response and incident handling into two separate roles. And I don't see that on every list where they talk about incident response roles. In this case, they kind of broke out the incident handling tasks into like project management, communications, documentation, which is okay. Although in most environments that aren't massive, those are kind of going to fall under one hat. But it's definitely not the incident responders or the security analyst's hat. So I promote, if possible, if you're in a large enough in, uh, organization, have an incident responder who's leading the response investigation from a technical perspective, you know, coordinating the, the specialists in various niches of security, and also have an incident handler. And the incident handler's job is to do the communications and project management side of things. They're the ones who are scheduling calls and dealing with panicking lawyers and making sure things are documented and procedures are followed. Um, so it's very, it's a very good idea for many reasons to have both of those roles running in any major incident um, that's going to be time-consuming over, say, one shift. So those two roles need to be different physical people, even in an organization of only two, right? I really recommend it. And the incident handler doesn't have to be really technical. Um, you can always have that SWAT team model of incident response team where you pull people in from other teams during a major incident who it's not their day job. Um, and your incident handler doesn't need to be a security person. It can be a project manager. It can be a manager manager. Um, it can be somebody who's called like IR manager at the company and has a incident responder working for them. Um, or, you know, your security operations center manager or something. But no matter where you pull that person from, it's really crucial when you're dealing with a major high severity, high panic inducing incident to have somebody pulling the flack off the person who's trying to coordinate the response. Otherwise, things are going to get missed. Yes, big time. They're going to get overwhelmed and major things either in analysis or remediation are going to get uh, left behind. Yeah, you get you get distracted, you lose your train of thought, you're you're getting you're frustrated, you're already frustrated because you're working on the issue and now you're constantly being interrupted and you're losing your train of thought, you're tired, you're worn out. Um, you really need to have someone else, you know, when I'm ready to feed you information, I'll feed you the info and you run with it and you deal with all that stuff 
upstream. I'll deal with everything downstream. Exactly. You're separating. I, I love that. You're separating the upstream from the downstream. The downstream to like if you have malware analysts or security operations or forensic analysts, um, whatever areas of security or IT are involved in the incident response. And then the upstream to corporate communications and legal and executives and whoever else is panicking and wants updates on the incident. Right. I really need you to go get the network guys to get me some PCAPs of this server if you have any of it or can get any of it because, you know, I see something really fishy and I want to see what you got. Go run with that for me while I <laughs> start looking for something else for someone to, something to do. So, yeah, it's... And it can be you and your manager. If you're the one security IR person in the company and you've got a boss, it can be you too. But try to break that upstream and downstream right. uh, apart. I completely agree. That's that's a big role here. There's lots of other roles in here. Um, let's see. Other other important ones are I think is at HP we had this concept of of a pre-decision. Uh, we experienced this when Slammer hit uh, and took down all of HP.com. It was actually a pre-decision to turn things off on purpose because of Code Red and Nimda. When Carly was there, we we got seriously impacted by that. She said. Okay, come up with a process, gave it to the IT folks of HP, and they ran with it, and they came up with the stuff, the consulting side I was with, some of our people helped with it. And the idea was when X, Y, and Z happens, some pre-decision occurs. In this case, I would I would say it makes sense. You know, again, here's maybe where tabletop exercises we'll talk about in a minute, is I can pre-determine certain things. For example, what PR group are we going to use? What legal person is going to be the, the main point or the person it would dealt with most? Try to come up with some of these, these roles that you know you're going to rely on so that person you're asking to do all this work doesn't have to figure that out in the course and of being yelled at. They should know. Yeah. They should know about it too. Yeah, they should know about it too. And they can figure this out before they are getting yelled at by executives saying, you know, the, the feds call me, what's going on? Um, you know, try to do some as much of this pre-decisions work as you can, uh, potentially maybe using tabletop exercises, executive tabletop exercises, and try to get some of the basics up. What do you do when a third party calls you and said, yeah, I just found all your credit cards on the dark web, so yeah, you got a problem, right? You should have a play for, playbook for that, and you should also have a contact list which is linkable or referenced in your playbook. There you go. But these are things we know. We don't care about the details, but these things, will, a third party will call you. Law enforcement will call you. Uh, the press will call you. you know, we, us incident responders through our manager is going to call you and say, uh-oh, we got a problem, right? Houston, we got a problem. And so these things can be predetermined because they're just, again, start with flowcharts and then start expanding from there and getting some tasks. And, and theoretically, you can work towards a tabletop on this. That's not a lot of work. It just takes a little work to realize, you know, you're going to pull these people in and just say, look, we're just going to try to make it easy in case this ever happens. And you got to keep these things very short. You're going to get maybe half hour of their time and an hour of their time at max when you're dealing with these execs, legal counsel and PR and, and you know, those folks and executives to say. It's all you want to do. <laughs> Yeah, that's the that's the thing we got to be cognizant about is how much time these people are going to take. Yeah. All right, Brian, what else we got on here? War Room. Um, I have an interesting take about War Rooms. Uh, everybody should have one. It's interesting when you finally make one or go use one, like let's say a conference space, and it's got glass windows and everybody can see what you're doing. Uh, we used to use these for B-Sides, and I put on B-Sides Austin here, and we had these 24 by 36 or 18 by 24, whatever they are, those huge sticky note easel pads where literally you tear them off and they stick. And just line the conference room with them so A, people can't see in, and B, it gives 
people a place to write things. You put them on the outside of the room as well as the inside. So the outside of the room can be the inputs for people that think they saw something because you don't want to be distracted. Hey, I saw this thing and I think you should look at it. The data will lead me theoretically to where I'm going. And then when I'm, you know, maybe got a break and I, I need some more input, I'll walk and look at that. Think about a war room and what it needs. It needs power. It needs Ethernet jacks. It potentially needs a switch. It needs a phone. It needs a place for, you know, the, the network guy and the IT guy. The, your your list of your team members that are going to be involved in your cert can sit and work together potentially and, and have enough connections and have a phone and have a place to write things down. You know, big sticky pads, a wall, a whiteboards. Some of these rooms have are literally lined with whiteboard painted walls. It needs to be accessible after hours. Yep. If your building locks down at 6 p.m. That is that is a challenge. You're right. Um, if it's locked down, uh, you, you definitely have to have your people have to have access 7 by 24. Uh, if you have data centers, maybe you're going to go investigate. Do your badges get you into those data centers? Uh, but these war rooms, I, I think you need a kit. Figure out what you need. If you need those sticky pads and you've identified a room, you know, put it on there and let people know this is a war room. If an event happens, we are taking it over. All meetings are canceled. Too bad for you. This only has one network jack. Uh, wireless isn't going to cut it. Maybe because wireless is toast at this point because it's part of the attack. You know, Ethernet jack. Maybe you've got to set up a, a hotspot, you know, for out-of-band communication. Try and, to get out-of-band, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's incident response 101 is try to get out-of-band so you want to have those resources in there too. Right. How do you communicate so that the bad guys aren't watching what you're communicating, right? So your war room, uh, the thought behind it takes a little work. Call it a place to hide. <laughs> uh, maybe it's in the corner of the building, in the basement, I don't know, where the stapler, uh, guy with the stapler is. But you know, you've got to give the war room some thought. You need a place to go because an open cube environment like a lot of companies have isn't really conducive to that. It's conducive to interruptions. It's not going to allow you to focus. You know, people can't bring you drinks and, and open the door. You really do need it. I've worked some huge incidences and if we didn't have, and we actually had to move offices because we needed the ability to lock the door and have more places to write stuff down whether they're i don't know if this is anything but i'm writing it on here so you you have one wall for the all the crap that you find in Barfon, and then you have another wall where you've confirmed stuff and eventually all that becomes part of what you write a report about and the details and all the items but a war room is surprisingly i think under thought of and uh, highly valuable for those of us that do the work and, and need a place to go. Hey, go get the network guy and bring him here so I can get him out of his distracted environment in a, a place where we can talk, right? Um, so take that into account when you're when you're planning IR. Yeah, and uh, this is me, Leslie. You can, you can just skip to this part of the podcast and play it for your boss. This is me telling you and your boss that every security team should have a place where you can go and lock the door and have privacy. I know that open office floor plans are the big new thing, but especially dealing with sensitive forensic data, going through people's hard drives and stuff, you should have somewhere that is accessible only by your team and you can lock it down and have some privacy. That's a necessity for a good security team. Yeah, I agree with you there. What about a virtual war room? Have you ever done one of those, like just strictly online? I, I was at a presentation where uh, the IR team would do it strictly on uh, OneNote. Oh, yeah. We saw a presentation on that, didn't we, where the guy did the whole thing and they were all doing stuff in OneNote. I work for a remote-heavy company. Um, there's definitely security concerns and privacy concerns that go along with that. Again, you're trying to take your communications out of bounds. So how are you connecting to your virtual war room? Are you using the compromised network? <laughs> are you using a compromised cloud service? Or, I mean, if you want to do that kind of thing, you need to have highly secure services that are entirely independent from your the company that you're doing incident response on. And if you're you're a contractor, you're going and doing incident response for another organization, 
you need to come in there with your own internet connection and have nothing to do with their network. Yeah, use a you know phone based network or use your yeah. phone's um, your phone so app. That's, you know, like a WhatsApp I mean, or a Skype on your it's phone. It's possible, and I I mean I have mixed feelings about remote collaboration, especially in high pressure environments like that. But I've definitely done remote instant response on like 50, 60 hour incidents where you know, people can't stay conscious anymore without going home. So. Okay. So what about tabletop exercises? I mean, these are really hard because it's all pretend, right? And, and I, I work better. I think I learn more under pressure than, than sort of pretending, okay, what could happen in this situation and, and take all these people who probably earn a, a much larger paycheck and get them all in the room and, and sort of waste their time on make-believe things, right? How do you handle that, Leslie? Well, go back when you were 17, you were playing Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, no, I mean, it takes some creativity. I'm, 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 only half, I'm only halfway joking, you know? Go back to that, that storytelling you were able to do as a kid, you know? It, we have playbooks, hypothetically. So we have some ideas about, we've already gone out there and talked to our company and we know our environment and we know about some things that can go wrong at that point. So it shouldn't be a problem to put an exercise out there. And yes, you do have to be somewhat creative and think about the various ways that investigations should go, but that helps you as much as it helps the people you're running the tabletop exercise for. So it's a skill that comes with practice. Uh, We don't get to exercise our creativity all the time as technical people, engineering people, but you have a place to start because you've done your procedures right. You've built playbooks. You understand the threat models of your company and uh, potential crown jewels and things that can go wrong with them in your organization. So start basing simple tabletop exercises over those things. And then they'll get more complex as you get more comfortable with working with people and simulating exercises. It's really just an exercise in improv for you using these these resources that you hypothetically built properly. Uh, start short. Keep them to 30 minutes, maybe an hour, depending on the resources, attention span. Maybe the more executive, the shorter they need to be. And then you just build them, you know, with any luck. Uh, you can do another one in six months and do another one in a year. You can get them somewhat familiar with the fact that these are the things you're going to be asked for. These are the things you recommend that you be prepared for. Who's going to write that statement? If you played an RPG, you can do an incident response tabletop exercise. You know how this works. (laughs) Uh, Maybe not a lot of security people have played games. (laughs) I work for a gaming company. I I can't imagine that any security people play any games at all. But I mean, like, people have decision trees. They're going to go one way or the other way. And sometimes they'll go completely the wrong direction. But you just kind of think about the possible ways they could go and you adapt to their responses and you present them with more information about the scenario you've worked out. So this has come up uh, several times, actually, in the Slack channel as well. Uh, people asking me about IR firms and what my experiences is there and, and what you should do and what's up with this retainer fee and, and what's it good for? What do you do with this retainer fee money? You know, And I've learned, surprisingly, that several IR firms will let you use the retainer fee to guarantee how fast they'll get to your site as a, as a will guarantee we'll have people there in 48 hours uh, versus you might get them this week or next week. Uh, really, well, that's what the retainer fee in, in a nutshell is. But the fees can often be used, and it's something to consider. At the end of the year, as they're expiring, you could potentially harvest or have several pieces of malware. You might really want to know what more they do 
reversing engineering whatnot and if you you don't have the, the time or the crew to do that maybe they can be used for a tabletop exercise or towards or a consul- hunting yeah or hunting or towards right a consulting engagement uh, it's something to ask your your IR firms about but uh, what do you what do you have there for people when they're talking about IR firm retainers and and what the fees could be used for that's a that's a great point yeah yeah absolutely talk to the person the company that you have an IR retainer with find out what you can use that money for um, sometimes it's beneficial if you buy a decent, I mean, don't wait till the end of the year. If you buy a decent IR retainer, you know, just set aside X dollars to do a tabletop exercise with that team. It gives you a different fresh perspective on things that can go wrong. And then you don't have to think of what, what goes wrong in your tabletop exercise. So yeah, you can use it for hunting in a lot of cases. You could use it for, um, you know, malware analysis, like you talked about education, uh, tabletop exercises. So Definitely have that conversation and understand what you can use that money for at the end of the year or as you need to throughout the year to to provide those types of services. I think this is probably something a lot of people don't know about. So, hey, food for thought. If you're talking to an IA firm for retainers, find out what those fees can be used for. And next, it's something that nobody wants to talk about, right? Because we all think that it's not going to happen or we all hope that it's not going to happen. But breach notification, why do we need to think about that? ahead of time because it is going to happen <laughs> i'm sorry it's it's probably not the not the greatest answer for everybody who's listening right now but just assume you're going to get breached it's not your fault i mean do the best you can build defense in depth uh build a strong house uh you know uh do your do your security hygiene as people have been saying lately uh do your best to build a good environment and good detection and good defenses but at some point, uh, the, the example that was told to me when I was in college, and it, you know, you remember a few things that really stand out to you after years after college, but this old telco guy gave this example that I love, and it was, um, you know, you uh, want to get like your neighbor to stop walking into your house, you put, a, you put a deadbolt on the door, and then your neighbor doesn't probably walk into your house anymore. But like, if the guys down the street decide they want to steal your TV when you're not home, they're just going to take a brick and they're going to bust out your window. You know, maybe then you install an alarm system and, you know, ADS comes out when the guy puts a brick through and scares him off and your TV is safe. But uh, your uh, ex-spouse decides to hire a hitman and have him come kill you and pays them $20,000 to do it, uh, they're going to get in whether you have a deadbolt or a great security system or not. I mean, it's all levels of threat there. Like, And it's the same thing in InfoSec. Like, Don't beat yourself up because you did the best that you could in the environment that you're in, and you really did the best you could to do good security hygiene and did made good risk decisions and built good detection and you got breached. Uh, that's a thing that can happen. Um, if somebody's uh, dedicated enough or they have the right zero day, you're going to get breached. So just plan for it and be prepared for it and understand that it's a thing that could potentially happen anywhere in any level of security. Now, why is it important to have a breach notification in a uh, plan? For legal reasons, as well as, you know, reputation defense for your company. Um, it's a big deal. It can really impact your stock price. It can impact the way your shareholders see your company. Um, it can impact your customer base in, in many different ways, and it can even demoralize your employees. So you uh, definitely want to, for legal reasons and for just branding reasons, uh, have a good procedure to make people feel comfortable with the fact that something horrible has happened. And uh, also protect yourself legally and follow regulatory direction for what to do when a breach occurs in your vertical. Uh, executives need to be prepared and or uh, legal and or PR 
uh, the message that you send, right? You get a call from a third party, uh, a newspaper. We actually, that happened to us in the gaming. The newspaper called us and says, hey, what's your thoughts about this article that's coming out tomorrow about the fact that you guys have been compromised? Well, we hadn't been compromised by what they were talking about. A partner that ran the game got compromised. It wasn't actually us, but it was the game. But, you know, that's that's how that industry works. And your people have to be know what, how to respond or when to let me get the right person to talk to you versus, oh, well, blah, 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 and spit out the wrong thing. And suddenly now you're in the news because the guy just said the wrong thing. Yeah. You should think about that and say, who, if, if you get these calls from these individuals, it must go to this person only so that they can collect the right information, who you are, where you're at. Again, playbook, tabletop exercise scenario. Um, so you don't say the wrong thing because, uh, you know, the CEO who will just blurt out what's at the top of his head, we haven't been breached when maybe he just hasn't been notified yet because um, we just found out by a call two hours earlier, right? Um, and so you do need to figure out who those parties are that's going to discuss and or disclose and or provide the written statement, the potential website statement, and there's some of that can be pre-planned and say, well, we don't know what you're going to say, but we know it has to be Bob and Mary will say it. Uh, you really need to, if you ever get a call or it's passed on to you, just say, well, um, let me get my people back and give me a phone number. You know, Teach people how to not say anything, collect the contact information, and I'll call you back within a period of time, and and that way it buys you some time to find out the details, facts, and or see what your people know to help make the proper, right, politically correct, uh, stock stockly correct answer so uh, everybody's happy. And, and that's something, you know, executives will like. Help me from not shooting myself in the foot. Well, you brought up a great point there that I don't think we stressed enough earlier about playbooks is playbooks are not just technical things. Playbooks are also human things and procedural interfacing things like like communications and uh, dealing with uh, callers and people requesting information. You have playbooks for all those different things, um, not just I saw an NMAP scan. Yeah. Well, last but not least, our favorite subject, training. <laughs> so where do, you, where do you send people to get trained on this subject? I know you have a whole list of books. I think there's like 10 of them in there. You want people to read them? I do. I want you to read like a thousand pages of stuff there. Like it's it's a lot. Well, the, mem the the memory forensics book <laughs> is, is a thousand yeah. pages alone. Yeah, that that thing's incredibly thick. Windows internals is what? Yeah, that's also very thick. They're big yeah. books. They are yeah. big, thick books that will take you like a month each to get through. Yeah, but I mean, that's kind of my answer to that question. Is read, read, I read, said read, this read, earlier, read. and I'm going to say it again. Incident response should really probably not be an entry-level job. You really have to have not necessarily in-depth knowledge, but you have to be jack-of-all-trades, master of none to direct operations in all these different niches. So it really does require a lot of experience in various areas of security at a high to medium level. So it's hard to train for using formal training. And there are courses like the ones you're going to talk about in a moment, which I agree with. There are courses out there that will teach you incident response in terms of like writing playbooks and giving you ideas of where to learn these skills. The bottom line is it comes from experience and drilling and drilling and doing tabletops and living through incidents. Yeah, I would say that uh, it's not for beginners, like you say, but if you are somebody who wants to get into the weeds and see and see the fact, I mean, personally for me, best experience I've ever had is when I multiple times when I was involved in fighting the Chinese in gaming was when we finally, you know, flipped that, that switch that kicked them out. 
Um, that was the sexiest, most enjoyable thing. M- more enjoyment, obviously, uh, el- elated for the fact I can sleep and rest now. But oh yeah. But as far as any pen testing I've ever done in my career and any of that, oh, kicking an adversary out is absolutely the biggest thrill you'll ever experience in InfoSec. And if you were trying to break into this or you think you might want to be in security and you're in a company who is dealing with these kinds of events, you should definitely take the opportunity to say, Give me something to do. I'll do anything you want. Yes. I just want to Get see how exposure. this is involved. Yeah, that exposure shows Get exposure me to everything. Yeah, passion. It shows me interest. You may hate it after you're done, um, but at least you'll know you hate it. And so, for those entry level people who say, "Well, it's not for entry level people," but you know, volunteer. This is diving in the deep end in a big way and trying to help out. Whether you're just splunk querying, you're going to listen to us. You're going to watch us work. You're going to stay up late. Yes. You're going to fetch us pizza, whatever the combination of things you were going to learn so much. Exposure, 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 whether that's, you know, just shadowing all you can in different security roles or, you know, just working as a SOC analyst for a couple of years. That's usually the most common way in the incident response I see is people who do a couple of years at a help desk or a SOC. So I can move on up from there. There are training sessions. I, I'm a CISH, uh, so it's Carnegie Mellon Certified Incident Handler, Computer Security Incident Handler. And I wouldn't call that for the um, experts. I would call that for the people that would be part of our team. And the leads would take something more of what we see at SANS training. Uh, if there's any other kinds of trainings, like we Brian and I took Vern's training, again, any of that exposure is good. Do it. Um, each little piece of information you'll pick up on, like so Vern's was very uh, NIST heavy. I've done government. I've been at it a bit, a little while, probably six years now. So uh, it's always good to see that and, and kind of go through that refresher. Take any course you can. Um, and again, uh, a lot of this training is probably for the, the middle tier of the group. Um, if you, you should graduate, in my opinion. I think sometimes SANS can be a bit overwhelming to the people that are a little above entry level. Maybe they've left the SOC and now want to become you know, incident response gurus, SANS might be a little much for them. And you have to really, and they have their, they have their course schedule and you go through it all. GCIH isn't bad. Um, GCIH, I, say, I would say, is like the next level after you had a little experience and you've done security plus. Build yourself up to it. And and those are two. Carnegie Mellon's got a program and certification you can take and SANS does too. I'm not sure if anybody else does, but those are two we listed. Yeah. And with that, Brian? Well, back in the before time when I managed a relationship with the data center, I knew basically all, all the servers that we had and, and um, all their communication and, and had a giant spreadsheet of who did what, who owned what, what, what all the firewalls were and all the network equipment and everything and, and where things were in the rack. And I, I was asked, can you be on our SWAT team? We need you. And I said, yes. And that's what led me to, uh, to where, where I am today in security in IR. It was that volunteering to say, yes, I can help you. Let's get this knocked out. Let's get this done. What do we need to do? And it was just uh, an acceleration from that point. And you will definitely think different on incident response when you live a big event. I think uh, in order to really say, you know, I'm seasoned, you've got to live a, a big event because everything you think you know, you actually now have to apply. <laughs> Quickly. And it never goes exactly like you think. Like you and it can get you, you can't get frustrated because like I said, you are gonna get breached and it's, there's gonna be some point in that incident response where you're like, damn it, like I mean that's the easiest thing ever. Why didn't I think about talking to somebody about that vulnerability or that system out there? And you can't get frustrated. You just have to do the job. It's it's like being a triage 
person in the ER. Like you just get in there, follow your playbooks and do the job. Yep. All right. Have we covered all the topics? Have we missed anything? Excellent. So um, that, that ends our topic. And uh, Leslie, if anyone has any questions on this, how would they get a hold of you? What's the best way? So I have an email address that's listed on my website. It's hacksforpancakes at gmail.com with the number four, like my Twitter handle. Um, and you're always welcome. Lots of people email me all the time with questions and I'm happy to receive them through there. That's probably the best way to reach me. You can also contact me on Twitter or other social media under the same handle. And uh, of course, you can contact me at Dragos too for ICS-related concerns, questions, etc. Excellent. The only thing left is to talk about root beer floats. All right. <laughs> <laughs> root beer floats. That's a that's a future topic. Stay tuned for more on root beer floats with any luck. Yeah, stay tuned. Hopefully. All right. So uh, that's it for the BDIR podcast episode three. Uh, signing out. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Leslie. My pleasure.